we got, we got ready to do that day, and I went back there. I, Jimmy Lukaszewski and Malcolm and I are going to work back there. And I said, well, why don't you boys go ahead of me, and I'll fall behind with the blower in case we uh, run into some animal with no shoulders. I don't, uh, I do not like snakes. I was playing golf years ago with, uh, I thought he was a friend. Not exactly sure now, but no, he was a dear friend. We played golf all the time, and, and he knew that I was terrified of snakes. And we were up at, uh, uh, I don't even know if it's open anymore. It's a place called Shallow Falls up at Pickwick. Beautiful golf course. And we're up there playing. It was on like the third hole. Something. It's a par three. And you, your cart's over here. And I go back to my bag to put my club in after missing the green with my tee shot. And I look down and he put a snake. In my, it was in my bag right where I was. Uh, fortunately, it was dead because uh, they didn't have to revive me but once. So. I did not like that. I have to admit, I did it. The guy that I was, the other guy that was with, the one that was riding with me, he was also terrified of snakes. And I saw one that I wasn't terrified of, a blue racer snake. You know what those are? His sucker was long. I mean, he was eight, nine feet long, and he was on the cart path. And I was driving the cart, so I just pulled up onto the cart path, and I pulled up like it was where the snake was like right here. When he stepped out, he was going to step on it. And I said, all right, Jimmy, get out. And he, he, and he, and he jumped and landed right in. <laughs> He's a big man. He landed right in my lap. I discovered uh, there are a number of reasons I don't like snakes, but that was part of it. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And then look up here. We all together? All right. I want to share my heart with you for a moment. You'll notice if you've been with us the last uh, week or so, and even if you're watching online virtually, if you're not here, we've been doing this little mini-series in First Peter. We're going to wrap up today. And we've been dealing with how do we deal with life in the middle of a pandemic and all the difficult things. And we could go around family to family, and everybody's suffering and hurting in a lot of different ways. We're going to wrap that up today. But one of the things we've been dealing with is surrendering everything to the Father, and we ended up with, and we're going to transition today into our final part about resisting our enemy, Satan, and being submissive to each other. That's the key. And so one of the things that's happening in the church in America is we've, we have turned politics into something that's incredibly divisive in the church during this pandemic, whether it's getting vaccinated, it's wearing masks, it's social distancing, whatever it might be. We've decided that that's become an essential of the faith, and we're going to fight over it. And I want to share my heart with you. Uh, it is not an essential of the faith. Uh, it is not something that we should fight over. The only one who gets victory when we fight over things like that is our enemy. We can disagree violently and think, you can think I'm a complete fool. In, in many arenas, you would probably be right. But it is not something that believers should be dividing over. And so let me share my heart with you concerning masks. I have a mask in my pocket. Do I think I need to wear that mask? The answer is no. But I will wear it when I'm around believers who want me to wear it because I love them. All right? So here's my message to you, and I want to make it clear. You are, there is no mandate you have to wear a mask to come to church. All right? 
If you feel comfortable and you don't want to wear a mask, you are welcome and you are loved. If you're on the other end where you want to wear a mask and you, you're not comfortable and you still want to wear one, guess what? You're welcome, you're loved, and you're respected. We love each other. We are a family. We don't fight over things that are insignificant. We might disagree, but we're not going to divide and fight over that. So if you come in with a mask on, I respect that, and I realize if you're wearing a mask, you probably don't want me in your face. So guess what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to get in your face. You probably don't want to shake and hug. And guess what? I'm fine with that. If you come in without a mask on, I'm going to greet the brethren with a holy kiss. Which is scriptural, by the way. You, you can look that up in your exhaustive concordance. Greet the brethren with a holy kiss. If you're, not, if you're comfortable, either way. It's, it's fine. It's not something we should divide over. Now, having said that, this building is also a daycare and an after-school care program Monday through Friday, 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night, which means we are under the auspices of the Health Department and the Department of Human Services 6 to 6, Monday through Friday, and the whole building is part. So you'll see some signs on the doors, and, and we have to post those, but it has nothing to do with worship services and church activities. For example, if Cameron wants to have something in here on Wednesday night, he can do that. Just after 6 o'clock. And so I want to make sure that, that you understand that and that you hear me. That we love each other. We respect one another. We, we do not divide over non-essential issues. And one of the things I've shared with you many times over the years, one of the things I love about serving at Christ Church, is that our goal is simply to find the balance in grace and truth. Not to be legalistic. To simply let scripture say what it says and as leaders, elders lead that way, and then as a congregation love each other that way, it simply comes back to the truth of the word of God. Things like this, not a, people are not going to agree on them. Believers are not going to completely agree on, on vaccinations and masks and social that, distancing. That's fine. Don't let it be divisive. Here's why. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, where we left off last week. Resist him. That's not talking about your husband, wives. Resist him. Look back at verse 8. See the context. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So where we left off last week is you need to recognize who your enemy is. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not other believers in the church. Your enemy is Satan. And as Christians, assuming you're born again and you know the Lord and you want to be part of your church, Satan has one desire for you. It's to keep you focused on the wrong things. Get your eyes off Jesus. You know, we're told in Hebrews, run the race. The one who put us in the race, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lay aside the weight that so easily besets us. I don't need another weight on my shoulders besetting me. And so I'm not going to fight over non-essential things. I want to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. I want to run the race that's set before me. I want us corporately to run the race that's set before us with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that when we do finish our race, like Paul said, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. 
And when I stand before Jesus, I can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And the older I get, I guess I get crotchety. I don't know. Is that a word? I think it probably is. I think I have that spiritual gift now. I didn't have it when I was younger. God gave me another spiritual gift called crotchetiness. And I just, not with you guys, but just in general, I get frustrated when I hear people say things that they claim to be Christian that are not. And again, one of the reasons I love serving here is that you guys love Jesus and you love each other. And I just want to encourage you to, to not let... I mean, I've read the health department directive. It came out, whenever it came out, Wednesday, Thursday, I think it came out Wednesday. I've read it probably 10 times. Stephen, I've talked about it a lot. I've read it over and over and over again. It's convoluted. It's confusing. It's contradictory. But guess what? During the week, Monday through Friday, 6 to 6, we have to operate. So we've got to figure it out. I've tried to get answers. I've got... uh, we're, we're trying to get answers from DHS, from the health department, from the governor's office. But the good thing is when it comes to worship services in the church, our governor, who is a Christian, we're under his auspices, not that of the health department when it comes to church. And so we're cool. So, again, as lovingly as I can say it, if you don't want to wear a mask, that's fine. If you do want to wear one, that's fine. We love, respect each other, and we're not going to fight over this. If you choose to fight, you have to fight with somebody else. All right? First Peter, let's pray. And then I want to get into First Peter 5 and wrap this up. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that we have a God who is real. As Francis Schaeffer said, you are the God who is there. Not our religion, not our, our philosophy of life. We follow and trust the one true God. The God who spoke the universe into existence. The God who said my name is, I am. So Lord, we want as believers, and I want it to begin with Randy. You know my heart. I want that to be the heart of each of us and the heart of Christ church, that we focus on Jesus. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get our eyes on something else. Don't get off the path. Focus on Christ. Focus on sharing the gospel. Loving each other first begins with the house of God, and then going out in our world and loving a world that's confused and conflicted and and scared that we could share hope with them. Because when it's all said and done, the most important thing is, what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with him? So I thank you for these these guys that are here, that are watching. You bless them, Father. And as we we look at your word, specifically today, we think about the history of the church over the last 2,000 plus years and how you have magnificently used the church to spread the good news, and that we want to be part of that in this generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 5, verse 9. So what we're going to look at today, and I, and I love doing this, and it's something I would encourage you to do if you don't do it, if most of you, I think, know how to read. If you don't, uh, see me later, but... I really encourage you, just, just to something, it's almost like a devotional thing to do, but I love to read biographies of Christians down through the centuries. The classic book is Fox's Book of Martyrs, has some, some in there, but I'm talking about, you've heard me mention it before, but the biography of people like Corey Ten Boom, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, on and on, Jim Elliott, uh, 
read biographies of believers, and particularly those that were martyred for their faith, and see how it challenges you to step up and realize that you're, you have a bond with these people, that bond being the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we're one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that when, when I was born again, when you were born again, we entered into this incredible family of God. That Jim Elliot, uh, murdered by the Orca Indians and Corey Ten Boom at a time in, in the Nazi concentration camps, and you can go all the way back to the first century, we're going to share some of those as we close out today, just a few examples that you can look at going back, whether it was the apostles, whoever, and you can say, as Peter said in his epistle, he wrote his epistle, he put it in one of his epistles, he put it this way, Second Peter, I'm writing to, the, to you, to those with, quote, like precious faith with us. In other words, Peter was saying to him, this is, this is Peter, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Jesus' three closest friends. This is Peter saying, I'm writing to you fellow believers whose faith is like ours. It's in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is our Messiah, who is the Christ. Because Peter would have been the last one, if we'd had a church meeting and a committee and voted right after Jesus was crucified, would Peter have been at the top of the list to lead us? No, he denied Jesus. He cursed him. That fire on the little servant girls, Peter cursed Jesus, said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And you see that beautiful in John 21, that beautiful chapter where Jesus came, comes to him and, and says, I need you to feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's such a message to us. You're not perfect. If you don't know that, ask somebody sitting around you. You're not perfect. But your Savior is. And Christ in you is your hope of glory, not your good looks. I'm glad that's it. Not your talent. Not your ability to sway people. Christ in you is your hope of glory. And I want other people to see the Christ in me. And that's why this is so important. That we understand what we share. Look at the top of your hand out. It's with believers of all time. I love the way Jesus put it. When Peter... They, Jesus was asking them, well, who do people say that I am? You know the story. Who do people say that I am? I say, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're, you're John the Baptist, some say you're the prophet. And I love it. I, I, just, I love scripture, but I love it when Jesus interacts with people. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, that's, whoa. I know you, it's not in the scripture, but I'm, I promise you this is what he said. Whoa, whoa, boys. It was like a team meeting. You know, we got to go out and listen, boys. Who do you say that I am? Peter, I don't want to know what John says. And John, I don't know what James says. And I I want to know what you, Peter, say. Who do you say I am? And John, who do you say I am? And James, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say, that great statement? On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I am the Christ. I am. It's not, he's not building it on Peter. He's building it on the statement that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. I am the great I am. And the gates of hell will not prevail. 
So we know that that's true. Here we are 2,000 years later, and that church that Jesus said would prevail. And by the way, that in Greek, that's an offensive statement. We're attacking the gates of hell to keep people out. We want to see them born again. We want to see them come to know Christ. Those gates are not going to win. They, are def- they were defeated when Jesus rose from the dead. So here was his point. You are part of the greatest organism that's ever existed on planet Earth, the church of Jesus Christ. And Peter, you're going to lead it for a while. And then there's a guy named Saul of Tarsus that's going to lead it for a while. And then we're going to keep going. And here we are, 2021, and we get to be the ones that are taking the gospel to the world. We need to take that seriously and be excited about it. Be through. I know you get tired of hearing me say it, but that's the reason we're on the planet. To spread the gospel and realize that we could identify with the saints going back to the first century church all the way up to today. There are people being martyred for their faith around the globe that we can identify with their faith because we have like precious faith with the apostles. So look at verse 9 again. So he says, resist Satan. We dealt with that last week. Now, the rest of verse 9. Verse Peter 5. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. As he writes this. Well, the first thing we need to understand, we're sharing with believers of all time. Number one, what do we share? We share the faith. Sharing the faith. Right here in verse 9, sharing the faith. Greek definite article, meaning how many of them are there? Only one. Now, we have faith in a lot of things. You have faith that the chair you're sitting in will hold you up. Although I've seen these chairs in action, that is misplaced faith. That's more of a hopeful wish. The faith. I have faith that when I get into my car and push that button, as long as I got that little thing in my pocket, it's going to start. Does that always happen? Now, if you don't put the little thing in your pocket, it says key not detected. But here's what he's saying. This is what's so cool about being a Christian. Verse 9. You can resist the devil. He's a defeated enemy. Steadfast in the faith. The faith that's genuine, that's real, that is worth putting your faith in. Faith means a channel of trust because it is the faith that will set you free. We are saved by faith. Grace is a gift to us and by faith we activate that in our lives. We're born again. God puts us into his body. We are adopted. So the faith that we trust in is the revealed truth from the word of God. It's the one and only redemptive truth. It is unique. That's what the word the means. It's unique. Now we're steadfast in this unique faith. There have been all kinds of religions prior to Jesus, since Jesus, and will be until Jesus comes back. But here's what scripture teaches us. There will be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. There will be religion after religion after religion. Idol after idol after idol. We've talked about that in the past. But when the smoke clears at the end of time, when we enter into the eternal state, how many gods will be there? One. And that's who you place your faith in if you're a Christian. 
Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no other. In the Old Testament, God put it a lot of different ways. I guess my favorite way, and we're going to begin a little series on that in a couple of weeks, is he said, Moses, just tell him I am. You just tell him. And then Jesus comes along and says, by the way, before Abraham was, I am. I get goosebumps every time I quote that verse. That's who our Savior is. Not our religious option slash choice. He is the great I am. So when it says steadfast in the faith, it means understand who you put your faith in. Who he is. What he can do. What he has done. He is God. The word steadfast is used a lot in the Bible. It's an old English word, but it means like your anchor, your rock, your refuge. My favorite word in the Bible, your hope. Not your wish. I'll be talking about the chairs. That they're a little shaky. Jesus is a rock. The, the term that's used in the Old Testament over and over again, you are my rock and my refuge. I can go to you and I know I'm going to be safe. And nothing's going to hurt me. New Testament uses that term hope in a lot of different ways. But the one you place your faith in, who is your rock and your refuge, is the same one David trusted in, the same one Joseph trusted in, the patriarchs trusted in, the prophets, on and on. In the book of Jude, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it. In the book of Jude, Verse 3, 4, it says this. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation shared with the apostles, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. By the way, saints are believers. You, me, every Christian, every believer is a saint. For the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. We have to be steadfast in the faith because see, it was committed to Peter and the apostles to go out into all the world, the Great Commission, and, and make learner followers of me. Jesus' great commission, then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So they, the early church, then Paul came along, the gospel went to the Gentiles, the early church, and it grew. Within, within a few hundred years, they Christianized the entire world, turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. They contended earnestly for the faith. And then it was passed on to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. You generation it out until you get to today, 2021. My generation... You know what the command is to us, my generation, which is older than everybody in the room with a couple of exceptions. You know what my generation, the command to us is? Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Pass it on to the next generation. And in my case, two generations. Pass it on so that when you're gone, that generation, the Cameron's generation, when I'm gone, what could Cameron's generation do? He's maybe two generations for me. What Cameron's generation? And Madison, 
What are, the, what are they? That's what's so exciting about seeing young people who love Jesus is to realize when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, it's not dependent on how cool Randy is. Well, I'm glad. Because one of these days, Randy's not going to be around anymore. And I'm excited that the next generation, the Mike Clays of the world and the Chads, I got children as old as them, that I know the church is in good hands because godly men will lead it and women will be there. We contend earnestly for the faith so that when we're gone, they can do what? Contend earnestly for the faith. And then they can contend earnestly for the faith until Jesus says, it's time. And he comes back. And he takes us all home. And we worship him together forever as his body, as his bride. Such a beautiful picture. But in the interim, it will be hard. We'll talk about that in a moment. We are to contend earnestly for the faith. It was delivered to us. That's our job. It's our privilege. It's our call to be Christians in the midst of a culture that is anti-Christian. You don't think the Roman Empire was anti-Christian? Go read history. Nero was a pig. And his number one target was Christians. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He, he, would, he burnt Rome down and blamed it on them. And Nero wasn't the only one. Throughout history, we've seen it. And we are seeing it today. America is not a Christian nation anymore. It is one that is anti-Christian. So what we have to do is contend earnestly for the faith, speaking the truth in love. Because we have the opportunity. Steadfast, our hope, our anchor, just like Abraham's, just like Joseph's, just like the apostles. Secondly, verse 9, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We talked about the suffering that they were about to undergo under Nero as this was written. It's about to happen, that great fire, A.D. 64. It was going to be very difficult. Here's what Peter is saying to them. Knowing, the original language knowing means never forget. Never forget what you know and are experiencing Look at verse 9 very closely. The same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In other words, I don't mean this to be in a trite way. It's very important. Yes, you're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer a fiery trial. And it is going to be difficult. But other believers are also suffering. You share a bond. A Holy Spirit bond that non-believers do not have or understand. Paul told Timothy, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, finish the verse for me. You will suffer persecution. Mark it down. What did Jesus say? Don't be surprised if the world hates you. It what? Hated me first. If you're going to live Christ-like, you're going to be mocked, in some cases hated, scorned. That's why when we come together as the body, the last thing we want to do is be divisive. We want to love each other. Because when we leave here, where are we going? You're going into the war. 
You're going out there where spiritual warfare is real. Satan doesn't want you to go out there victorious. He wants you to go out there defeated and down. Understand that you share. It's experienced. Please see that word in verse 9. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced. Let me tell you what that word means. It It doesn't mean that they're just suffering. It means God is accomplishing something through their suffering. That he has a purpose. God doesn't do evil, but evil exists. And he even uses it. He is Romans 8, 28 is either true or it's not. He's always working good. Even in the midst of difficulty, he's working good. In Deuteronomy, the Bible says this. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That was Moses to the people as he gave them the law as they headed toward the promised land. Did they have it real easy? No, and a lot of their problem was they brought on themselves because they were rebellious. But in the midst of the rebellion, the one thing that always was true, where did God go? He was there with them. Jesus said, you know the verse. I am with you at the end of the Great Commission. I am with you always. Now, a lot of false teachers say, you're never going to have difficulties. You're not going to be in pain. You're not going to be sick. You're always going to have all the money you want. Is that what Jesus promised? Is that what scripture promises? Is that what life shows you? Of course not. Life can be hard, you can be difficult, you can be sick, you can have financial, you can have problems, in all kinds of issues. But what does Jesus promise you? I don't care what your issues are, I am where? With you. Yeah, you're going to suffer. Paul put it this way. He, it was that a, Jesus looked at the cross, going to get, be crucified, being tortured to death, being beaten to where his vital organs were exposed, he called that the joy of the cross. If there's ever been an oxymoron in the history of oxymorons, there it is. The joy of the cross. There is no way you can look at that and say that would be joyful unless you understand the purpose behind it. He went to the cross to buy our redemption. So we have an understanding. That brothers were suffering then, brothers are suffering now. In Hebrews chapter 11, and you, you know the passage, Hebrews chapter 11 leading into chapter 12, we quoted the beginning of chapter 12 a moment ago. I'm just going to read you briefly from Hebrews 11, called the Hall of Faith. It lists Abraham and it lists other names that you know, but I want you to listen closely to this. In the middle of that great chapter 11, it says this. These all died in faith. Again, talking about Abraham going back with the patriarchs and others. He mentions many by name. Then he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed or agreed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly they seek a homeland 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But they now desire a better heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now listen to the description. Their names are not even mentioned. Notice what it says. Others, Old Testament saints, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Scourging is that beating where your vital organs are exposed. Yes, some had chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were cut in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All these, they obtained a good testimony through faith. They did not receive the promise on earth. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, like them, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight. In other words, we honor them, the Old Testament saints, and the saints down through history. We honor them by understanding our suffering is a privilege for the cause of Christ. doesn't mean we want it. doesn't mean we like it. It means we know God is working a purpose that's bigger than us, and we're on a team. And we want the world to know Jesus Christ because they had an eternal perspective. And that's the next point. Verse 10, they share, we share with them an eternal perspective. Look at verse 10. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Verse 10, that's our hope. We share grace, salvation with the saints of history. God sustains us in the moment and gives us a capacity. He carries us and daily he feeds us. We share that with them. Glory for the future, realizing that we're going to suffer temporarily, but that God is doing something. Flip back to chapter 1 for a moment, 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 4, 1, 4. You've heard me mention this before. Every funeral I do, I share this passage, part of it. Verse 4. God saved us in verse 3 to a resurrection through Jesus Christ. Now verse 4. He saved us to what? An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We just read about the saints in in Hebrews chapter 11. They went through all of that because their focus was on what awaited them beyond the grave. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while on earth, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials while on earth. It will happen. We have glory for the future, even though we suffer now, and it's hard. And God in that process builds character in us. He perfects us, strengthens us. 
Now go back to 1 Peter 5. We'll wrap this up. Verse 10. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. I love this metaphor. I want to share it with you in the original language after we look at it for just a second. The word perfect means to make something whole, complete, mend something that's broken. Establish means to set it fast. Strengthen means to make it strong. And settle means to put it on a foundation where it'll work again. Here's the picture in the original language. I had this happen to me when I was in the eighth grade, and that's why I love this metaphor. I was playing, I had basketball practice in eighth grade, and, and my next door neighbor was going to give me a ride home in his pickup truck with his brother, and we were on the team, and he was going to get, so we get in the back of the pickup truck, and instead of going home, they decided they were going to go somewhere else. Well, if I didn't get home, I was going to be in some serious trouble with my dad. So when they were rolling to a stop sign, I decided I'll jump out of the back of the pickup truck and walk home. And I landed on my left ankle and I broke it. To this day, I have a chip in my left ankle that keeps me from like dunking and things like that. It's always a struggle. And my dad, in his great wisdom, I get home, you know, I'm just, I had to walk home. What was it, maybe eight miles, something like that? But, you know, we used to joke because she lived right across the street from the school. I had to walk over a mile. But so anyway, I get home. And my dad, in his wisdom, like you heard people joke, it's literally my dad just, you'll be all right, forget about it. Rub some dirt on it and go, go back, that kind of thing. And I didn't find out until years later when I x-rayed it, I had a, actually had a fractured bone in there and had affected my ability. I would have been a superstar, I'm sure. That's the picture right here in Greek. Is you have a broken bone in the foot primarily is the picture. And you mend it and you strengthen it to give you the firm foundation that you could do what on that foot again? Walk. And trust it. That firm foundation that you can't get anywhere but in the person of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul put it this way. He says, not that I've already attained, or I'm already perfected, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that passage. I love that book. One thing I do. So finally, verse 11. We have that hope we share with believers of all time. But here's what we will share with believers of all time forever. Forever. Beyond the grave. Worship. Verse 11. To him, Christ Jesus, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what amen means? We say it all the time. We don't, probably don't even know what it means. It means let it be so. Let it be so in my life right now, that Jesus has the glory and the dominion. And it's not just now, but it is forever. That's what Paul in Philippians says, I can't wait to die. I know I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. I can't wait to die. I want to be with Jesus. But if God wants me to hang around here and help you guys, I will. That's my paraphrase. That's literally what he was saying. For me to live is Christ, and to die is 
game. That's why that verse is all over my office. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the guy that taught it to me. He changed my life. Every day is an opportunity to live for Christ. I'm going to share a couple of examples with you, and I'm going to turn it over. We're going to have our last song, and we're going to close out in a special way today. So let me just share. These are actual stories of people we share this with. I mentioned Corey Ten Boom to you. I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm not going to go into their details. You can look those up, and I encourage you to do that if you never... Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, how he died and who he was, a Corey Ten Boom. And just a couple I want to share with you that maybe you haven't heard of. This lady's name was Perpetua. I'm sure when you have your first child, it'll be a great name for a little girl. Perpetua. 26 years old. Married woman with a little baby. Soldiers dragged her from her home in Africa. She was seized for being a Christian. Her father came to visit her and tried to persuade her to renounce Christ. She refused. Her father beat her severely. She was brought into court, ordered to sacrifice to idols. She refused. The court took her baby from her and threw her into a dungeon. When she again brought before the court, the judge begged her to think of her father and her baby and to renounce Jesus. She refused. The judge condemned her to death. Perpetua was thrown into an arena with wild animals. The animals mauled but did not kill her. So a soldier finished her off with his sword. Perpetua died in March of 205 A.D., after being in prison three years. On October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and then burned at the stake. His crime was translating the Bible into English so that the common people of his country might be able to read it. Chet Bitterman worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. It was a missionary organization. They translated the Bible into obscure native tongues. After completing his studies, he asked to be sent to Columbia, he traveled to Loma Linda Center in Colombia with his wife and children to await assignment. He wanted to work with a small tribe called the Carjonas. One afternoon in 1980, a jeep carrying guerrillas from the Marxist group M19 pulled up in front of Loma Linda Center. They believed the center to be a CIA front for Yankee imperialism. They took Chet hostage, demanding that Wycliffe leave Colombia or face Chet's execution. Chet was able to get a message out to his wife. He told her that the important work of translating God's word into native dialects must continue. His family agreed that the demands of the guerrillas must not be met. A little over a month after Chet was taken prisoner, the the guerrillas drove a stolen bus into town with a drugged Chet handcuffed between the seats. They shot him in the chest and deserted the bus containing his body. As a result of this incident, public opinion in Colombia turned to support Wycliffe. A previously hostile press condemned the actions of the guerrillas. Two years after Chet's death, a man came to talk to a priest in a church south of Bogota, Colombia. He asked about and received salvation. He heard a man pray for him and quote scripture, a man he had been guarding as a prisoner. That man was Chet Bitterman. And I could, I could, that's why I say I love reading this kind of stuff. I could give you hundreds of these kind of stories. In communist last one, Elizabeth Panina. In communist Eastern Europe, it's a crime to give a Christian instruction to a person, to give Christian instruction to a person under 18. This is the reason Elizabeth Panina is serving a four-year term in prison and hard labor. Her crime, teaching the Bible to children. We're not persecuted yet in the United States. We may be. 
my, my point is this. How do we respond when it comes? Can I keep my eyes on Jesus? I pray. I can understand. We share something special with believers of all time. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, as we get ready to uh, close out our time together today, we want to stop and focus on the person of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our Lord. We're grateful, Father, for the opportunity to be called your children. The privilege of sharing Jesus with a world that does not understand, but a world that's desperate for the hope that Christ offers. So, Lord, as, as we reflect over the next few moments, as the worship band leads us, that we would think about who our Savior is and then think about the church that he established. It's his body, his bride. We're part of that, that we share with the Elizabeth Paninas, the Chet Bittermans, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers, the Corey Ten Booms, people even today around the globe that are, if they meet together like this, they're in danger of losing their lives. We share a common bond, the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We commit this time to you in his name. Amen. Please stand if you're in the house as we...